Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 94. We made it. It is finally time. We've got NFL on Thursday. We've got Packers-Bears on Sunday. We've got a forecasted high in Sheboygan of 68 degrees on Thursday and Friday. We are here. We finally made it to football. We are going to talk some NFL. We are going to get number two on the top five, my personal favorite Packer-Bear matchup countdown. We'll get to that coming up at the end of the episode. We're also going to do some futures picks. We're not going to do any week one gambling lines. We'll do that on Friday. We will see the return of the gambling picks on Friday. But there are some season win total over-unders that I like, and there are some division futures that I like for division champions. We're going to do those today, and then we'll do individual week one picks, gambling picks against the spread on Friday. Futures picks today. I do have a pick on the Chiefs and Lions game, the opener on Thursday. We have to do that today. Obviously, doing that on Friday would make no sense. We'll also talk about the Brewers. Up and down Labor Day weekend, literally up and down. Good series against Philly, bad Labor Day Monday, flat game against Pittsburgh, and the Cubs win again. The lead is two and a half games as we are into just about the stretch run here for a push toward postseason baseball. And we will recap week one of the Luke Fickle era. It was a little rough around the edges. It's a good thing we managed those expectations on Friday, right? Right. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! We're going to smash up the middle, base hit the center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside, leads in, backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, we got into work this morning, and we knew. I mean, everybody pays attention to the weather. It's at the click of an app now. It's literally at your fingertips 24-7, 365. It is rare that people just go day-to-day without really knowing what the weather's going to be. But just seeing it and giving the forecast, that first 6.04 in the morning forecast on the B93 Morning Show, we're still hot and humid today. We're kind of hot and humid on Wednesday. Just saying 68 for the high on Thursday and Friday and knowing that it's NFL week and knowing that it's going to feel like fall in the morning when I come in on Thursday morning and Friday morning, it's going to be in the low 50s or mid 50s and you're going to be beating football away from your face. Football is going to be in the air. It just warmed my heart this morning to be able to read that forecast as we are getting set for week one of the NFL. We are going to get to those futures picks. We are going to talk a little Chiefs-Lions. Not a lot, just one pick we're going to make on that game. And then we will talk about college football, not just the Badgers, but Deion Sanders in Colorado. What a game that was. That was the story of college football Saturday, the first full schedule of college football on Saturday and Sunday and a little into Monday, too. Dabo Sweeney and Clemson, yikes. That was unexpected, getting thumped by 21 points at Duke. We will break all that down. We're going to start, though, with baseball. As we set off the top in the teaser, it was a really up-and-down Labor Day weekend. We started so good. It started on Friday. 
series against Philadelphia. You knew it wasn't going to be easy. The Phillies are the number one wild card team right now, and they've been as hot as the Brewers had been during that nine-game winning streak. I think the Phillies won something like 10 of 12 during that run when the Brewers won 9 of 11 or whatever it was. They've been hot, too, and that offense is loaded top to bottom with Bryce Harper and Castellanos. Castellanos a drive. And the Reds are up 4-1. to one. one of my favorite broadcaster moments when Tom Brenneman was it was making an apology during a Reds broadcast about something he said in the broadcast. And then in the midst of that, Castellanos went yard. And being a play-by-play guy, he had to call it. One of my favorite broadcasting moments ever. But they are loaded top to bottom. Trey Turner, we saw that on full display, too. That Friday game, it was Trey Turner when they brought in Devin Williams in the eighth inning. Very rare you see Council go to Williams in the eighth inning, try to get a four-out save. He had two on and two outs. Obviously, hindsight's 20-20, and given what happened, it's easy to say I would have kept Yoel Piams in the game. I felt that way in the moment. You can ask my wife. I was screaming it at the TV. Just let him in there. He had two men on with nobody up, but then he got two outs. It seemed like he had stabilized a bit. Just let him get the final out. They bring in Devin. He gives up a three-run bomb. Brewers are down at that point, and you feel like the game is lost. And then in the bottom of the eighth, they rally, get a couple of guys on, and Alec Bohm at third base, just one of those Tommy Manske's <laughs> defensive tapes, just went right under the mitt, and that allowed three runs to score. Electric at AmFam Field. When they showed the long view of it, it looked like a playoff game. It sounded like a playoff game with all the fans rising in unison and going nuts when they realized that ball had gotten under his glove and we were about to take the lead. The Brewers were about to take the lead. I'm saying we, whatever. We were about to take the lead. Williams comes out, then goes 1-2-3 in the ninth inning, and they get a 7-5 win on Friday. Then on Saturday, Colin Ray had to make a spot start. Hauser on the IL. Sounds like it should be a short stint. I know a lot of Brewers fans were hoping for the debut of Robert Gosser. Gosser is the last actual true chip that they got in the original hater trade. The other pieces have now been sold off or cut, and Estuary Ruiz ended up being a big part of the William Contreras deal and the Yoel Piams coming to Milwaukee deal. The last real piece of those four players coming back is Robert Gosser, and he is one of the top-rated pitchers in the Brewers system. He's had a very good year at AAA. A lot of folks hoping to see his debut on Saturday. He had pitched, though, the night before. The option then would have been to have Gosser on seven or eight days rest, making his Major League debut. Pitchers will tell you, they are German. They are creatures of habit and creatures of routine. When you get them out of that, it's difficult enough, let alone a pitcher in a pennant race making his debut. I don't think they like that. It was then probably either Julio Tehran coming back. Remember him? I had forgotten about Julio Tehran. When that was suggested as a guy who might make one of those starts or might make the start on Saturday, I had totally forgotten about Julio Tehran, even though he was really good for six starts and then kind of bad for four or five starts, and then he got hurt. I guess it wasn't a mystery element. They bring back Colin Ray, who had, in the middle of the year, a lot of starts. It ended up being his 20th start of the season on Saturday, and he was what he has been. He was pretty good, and the offense did enough. And they get another 7-5 win. They are 12-8 and eight in Colin Ray starts. Colin Ray has thrown over 100 innings. He's made 20 starts, 21 appearances. If this team does something or makes some kind of run, I think you got to look at him as one of the unsung heroes. His numbers aren't great. The ERA is a little over 5. I think he just has a positive war now of .1 or .2. He's made 20 starts, though, and they're 12-8 and eight in those starts. He's kept them in those games, including Saturday in a 7-5 win. Another nice win. That comboed up with devastating late-inning Cubs losses on Friday and Saturday had us feeling real good on Sunday. The vibes were good on Sunday morning, waking up with a a four-and-a-half game lead in the NL Central and looking for a sweep of the Phillies. And the Brewers had the lead. They had the 2-0 lead early, a couple of home runs from 
who was it? Oh, Mark Canna and William Contreras. Boy, Canna's been so good. Canna and Santana both have turned things around after a slow start since they came to Milwaukee at the deadline. Canna's batting like 290 now with an OPS over 800 in his time in Milwaukee. Had the 2-0 lead. Miley was cruising until the sixth inning. Gave up a run there. Still 2-1. They left him in. And then the Phillies got to him. That offense finally got charged up. They knocked him around for a couple of home runs. Took a 4-2 lead. Certainly there was second guessing of counsel. There was a lot of second guessing of counsel in that Phillies series. First with the Williams coming in in the eighth inning on Friday. And then with leaving Mylene in the sixth inning. You know what's wild though? (laughs) The same people that get so mad that Craig Council takes pitchers out in the fifth inning or the sixth inning or or when they're close to 100 pitches. There's a whole subsect of Brewers fans. They live in the sewers. There's a whole subculture of Brewers fans that just hate, hate, hate the pitch count era, and they hate how readily Craig Council subscribes to that, getting guys out the third time through the order, especially when they're rolling. Just leave them in. Why don't you just leave them in? Well... Wade Miley had six innings of one-run ball, and he was at 80 pitches, and he just left him in. And look what happened. And then those same people that complain about that were the ones saying, how could you you leave Miley out there? He was clearly out of gas at the end of the sixth inning. Clearly he was. Just interesting. You know it's the same group of people. How could you leave him in there? But he gets, I think, four runs. All of those were his, right? Gives up four runs. Phillies take a 4-2 lead, and they win on Sunday. Fine. Okay. It's tough to sweep a good team. You won the series, and you won the season series, which may become important. The division hasn't been decided yet, and it's really tight as we wake up here on Tuesday morning. It may be important in the next two to three weeks having that tiebreaker with Philadelphia for the number one wildcard spot, which would get you a home series in that 4-5 matchup. That could be critical. You took care of business, won the series, and took the season series. Cubs did win on Sunday. You enter Labor Day Monday with a three-and-a-half game lead. Still feeling pretty good. We're not feeling pretty good about Monday. Cubs get a 5 nothing win behind Justin Steele against the Giants at Wrigley. You were hoping the Giants would give them more of a battle there, and maybe they will in this series. Giants are fighting for their playoff lives, trying to chase down that number two wild card seed. But Justin Steele, I mean, are there blue steel references in Chicago? There have got to be, right? The guy's been unbelievable. Seven shutout innings. He is 16-3 and three now. The ERA is 2-5. It would appear as though, as much as it pains me to say it, that he is edging to the forefront of the NL Cy Young conversation. That happened early in the day. You knew that result then heading into Monday night. There were not a lot of night games. There's normally just a lot of Labor Day afternoon games. Brewers were an evening start time. You knew the Cubs had won going into that. You had your own Cy Young Award winner on the mound. Corbin Burns taking on a bad Pittsburgh Pirates team. Feeling pretty good about that. You get two runs early, just like on Sunday. This time, instead of two solo shots, it was two sack flies, taking advantage of some wild pitching in the second inning. 2 nothing lead early. Corbin on the mound looked like he was rolling. And then the offense just couldn't do anything. Very similar to Sunday. The stopper was put down. They couldn't scrape together any more offense. And Corbin Burns in the middle inning started leaving a lot of stuff over the middle. And he said that at the end of the game. He just said there were bad pitches. I don't know what you want me to say. I left a lot of pitches over the middle, over the heart of the plate, and they hit him. Two-run bomb tied it, then a solo shot put the Pirates in front from Key Brian Hayes and old friend Andrew McCutcheon. An RBI double tacked on the fifth inning, made it 4-2. Not insurmountable. You just got that feeling, though, in the fifth or sixth inning that that was the game. Even though the Brewers had four innings left to try to rally, it just felt like that was it, given the way the offense was going, and it was. A couple of hard hit balls late in the game that ended up going right to defenders. Maybe you can look to that a bit as some silver lining heading into Tuesday. But you lose 4-2, and now that division lead, we're right back to two and a half games. We're right back to where we were when we recorded the podcast on Friday. I guess you could look at it that way. 
Four days have gone since we last recorded this podcast. They had a two-and-a-half game lead. Four days later, it's still a two-and-a-half game lead. Just trying to check those boxes, trying to put X's over dates on the calendar where the Brewers are still in first place. And hopefully they're still in first by the time you get to the end of it. Nothing essentially changes from podcast number 93, episode 93, to episode 94. You wish, though, it would have stayed in that three-and-a-half or four-and-a-half game range. You do not want to lose these games to bad teams in September when you've got Corbin Burns on the hill. And admittedly, Corbin, since the All-Star break, has been more Cy Young-like. He's had a couple of hiccups now with this one. He had the bad start in Chicago, the rough start in the Heat on Wednesday, last week Wednesday, or two weeks ago Wednesday now, the one it was like 115 Heat Index against the Twins. The offense rallied and picked him up in that game. Other than those three, he's had seven brilliant starts since the All-Star game. You look at the overall numbers, though, nine and eights. We've talked about win-loss record not being a great judge of what a pitcher is in this modern era. 3.63 or 3.7 ERA. He's got a bunch of strikeouts. Been kind of mad in certain games when you need him to be locked down. You needed him to be locked down yesterday and it just didn't happen. With the loss, they are 76 and 61. Now, I saw a tweet. I think it was Mike Vassallo. Somebody. Somebody with credibility, I think, with a blue check mark. Paid for or unpaid for. Aren't they all paid for now? And it basically said, before the game last night, it said all the Brewers have to do is win series the rest of the way. If they win every series the rest of the way, which is a large ask, but it's what, five series or six? If they win every series the rest of the way, they will go 18-8 and in their final 26 games. And that would have included yesterday's game. If they do that, the Cubs would have to go something like 23-4 and in their final 27 to get past the Brewers and take the division. Not likely to happen. Just win series. If you just keep winning series, you should be okay. That means you have to win tonight, though. You got to get one tonight. Woodruff on the hill. You cannot afford back-to-back losses in Pittsburgh with Burns on the hill in game one and Woodruff on the hill in game two. I'm not calling tonight a must-win. It's a need to win, though. You can't lose those two games against this team with those two starting pitchers on the hill. And you've got Freddie tomorrow. When you start this series, you always hate to think sweep right out of the gate. When you look at this series, though, against a team 10 games under 500, with how important everything is right now for the Brewers in the division race, and you've got Burns, Woodruff, and Peralta going, you've got to be thinking sweep. Well, now you've got to recalibrate. Woodruff on the hill tonight, 535 start time. Cubs have their second game against the Giants. That is on national TV tonight at 640 on TBS. You'd love for the Giants to get one here. I'm not sure what they have beyond that. Brewers have three against Pittsburgh. Then they've got a day off, and they only have two days off remaining. One of them is Thursday. And then they head to New York to take on the Yankees. Maybe we see Josh Donaldson on Friday. He is three games into his Nashville tenure. He's batting over 300. he He's got two home runs and an OPS well over 1,000. It sounded like when they signed him, it was going to be one week, and then he was up. And the way he's performing, seems like that's probably going to be the case. You might see Josh Donaldson starting at third in New York in his old haunts. On Friday, two more against Pittsburgh, three against New York, and then the Brewers start a seven-game homestand with Miami, who's still kind of battling for that second wild-card spot, and then three with Washington, who have been frisky. You hate how frisky that they've been as a last-place team. Chicago's got two more against the Giants, four against Arizona. Arizona's in that second wild-card mix, too, and they're going to have to see both Zach Gallen and Michael Kelly in that series. Then they're in Colorado last place for three, in Arizona for three, at home for Pittsburgh and Colorado. That's going to be maybe where the division's going to get real tight when you've got the Cubs with a six-game homestand with Pittsburgh and Colorado for six straight. Then, though, they go to Atlanta and to Milwaukee 
on a six-game road trip, their final road trip of the year. It's September baseball, baby. We're post-Labor Day. It is time for the playoff push. Back at it tonight for the crew in Pittsburgh. A need to win. Not a must win. A need to win. There's a difference. All right, let's talk a little NFL. We are getting set for week one. and Or do you want to talk college football? You know what? Let's talk college football. Let's do this college football, and then we'll go NFL futures picks. And then that'll segue beautifully into the number two on my number on my top five Packer-Bear matchups. Doesn't make sense to go NFL college football back to NFL. College football. Game one of the Luke Fickle era. Aren't you glad that we managed expectations on Friday? Remember, Friday was a whole five-minute segment of me talking myself down on expectations for this Badger team because they had gotten out of hand, and they may still be out of hand for some people. When Fickle was hired in November, every subsequent week, it's been the Fickle signal, it's been another four- or five-star recruit or another four- or five-star transfer quarterback all the energy and enthusiasm and hype behind this program, we finally saw it on the field instead of all the the off-the-field hype leading into the season. And on Friday, I said, there are some reasons to manage expectations here. There's going to be a learning curve. Fickle has a history of success in college football. It is still his first year at a brand-new program. There is a brand-new offense under Phil Longo that they're trying to install. They've got a brand-new quarterback. Even though he's 23 years old, he's a fifth-year transfer. He has not worked in the Longo system before. You've got a bunch of young wide receivers in there, some returning from last year. But you've got new guys in there at wide receivers, some new pieces on defense. It's the first game of the year. There are probably going to be growing pains. Remember that on Friday when we said all that? Well, (laughs) that's how it played out on Saturday. It was a very uneven first half on both sides of the ball. The defense looked a lot better in the second half. The only touchdown they gave up in the second half was after Buffalo got a short field following Mordecai's second pick. We'll talk about Mordecai in a second. The defense, to me, looked way more locked in after being out of sorts in the first half, far more honed in in the second half. That was encouraging. The offense, for all the talk we had about the air raid and going with the Madden all streaks, the dairy raid, airing it out, four wide, five wide, we saw a lot of those sets. They weren't all that successful in the first half. And then what do you go back to? What do you lean on on Badger football in a Badger football program that they've leaned on now for 30 years? The running game, the bread and butter. For all the talk of airing it out, it was the running game again. Chez Malusi and Braylon Allen, they combined for almost 300 yards on the ground. Malusi had that incredible 89-yard touchdown run. I can't find the LePay audio. We were on our way. My wife's brother had a birthday on Saturday. We were on our way to dinner. And we got in the car and turned on the radio just as Malusi was breaking that. And it made me happy because nobody calls a big run or a big offensive play better than Matt LePay. The way that he emphasizes inside the 40, inside the 35-30, 25-20, the way his voice ramps up, the way he gets excited and accelerates it, nobody calls a big run, especially a run where you get to count off the yardage or where they are on the field more specifically. Nobody calls it better than LePay. LePay is the GOAT. I was so happy I got to hear LePay call that. Uh, Malusi had a big day, and Malusi had some bursts. He's had two years in Wisconsin now since the transfer from Clemson. He's had injuries both the years, and I believe knee injuries. He looked to have excellent burst on Saturday. That's good news. That's a fantastic one-two punch. Not that anybody was downplaying that heading into the year. Uh, Malusi, you always worry about coming back from a couple of injuries. He looked as good as he's looked in a Badger jersey, as fast as he's looked, and he had good cutback vision as well, especially on that touchdown run. That wasn't a breakaway. He was weaving in and out of traffic there on that 89-yard touchdown run. 
Him and Braylon team up for almost 300 yards on the ground. That leads the way to a 38-17 win over Buffalo on Saturday. Didn't get the cover because of turnovers and because of a drop touchdown. Now let's talk about Tanner Mordecai. We said on Friday, as a part of Expectation Management 101, we said on Friday he had great numbers at SMU, but SMU is not the Big Ten. They didn't play a Big Ten team, obviously, in the opener. In a new system, learning a different offensive scheme, there's going to be a learning curve. He's not going to be a guy at SMU the last two years. He had, what, 70-plus touchdowns, 72 touchdowns in the air, and 15 picks, something crazy, some great ratio. It's not going to be that easy. And we saw that on Saturday. He ends up 24 of 31, 189 yards, one touchdown, and two picks. What does that stat line sound like to you? If I told you Badger quarterback, name that Badger quarterback, 24 of 31, 189 yards, one touchdown, two picks. Who would you name there? There are probably a couple you could throw in there. That's kind of a, a Stave line, too. That sounds like Graham Mertz, and that was the phrase being thrown around on Twitter, that it was Mertzian. That was a downright Mertzian game from Tanner Mordecai. And because the expectations were sky high and the new offense and a different look for a Badger offense, this quarterback coming in, you hear quarterback transfer, big-name quarterback transfer, you immediately think Russell Wilson. There's all these unfair expectations on Tanner Mordecai. He's not going to be Russell Wilson. Nobody's ever going to be Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson in that one year in Madison will be, likely, the greatest single year of Badger quarterback play ever. No one's going to come close. When you go back and look at those games and his stats, 33 touchdowns, four picks, accuracy, it was just unbelievable, his ability to scramble. It would be hard to fathom somebody ever reaching that one single season of Badger quarterbacking. But when you hear transfer, big name transfer coming to Wisconsin, you always think about that because of his transfer coming to Wisconsin in 2011. Mordecai did struggle in the first half and made some bad decisions, had some happy feet in the pocket, a lot of short passes, didn't trust it downfield. One of the biggest plays of the game, though, which I think probably changes maybe our entire perspective on what he looked like on Saturday, the Skylar Bell drop. That was a dime. He could not have put that in a better spot. That was a four wide. That was Skylar Bell right down the seam. Mordecai hit him in stride in the hands for what should have been a 60-yard touchdown. And Bell just dropped it, just flat dropped it. Two plays later, he throws his first of two interceptions. If he hauls that in, it's a 60-yard touchdown, and likely Mordecai ends the day with 230 or 240 yards passing, two touchdowns, one pick, instead of 189, one touchdown, two picks. Maybe some people are still throwing out the Mertz correlation there. I doubt it, though. The numbers would have looked a lot better, and that was not on him. The decision two plays later was on him. But if Skylar Bell makes that catch and he's in the end zone, that play never happens. You can wipe that away like a fading family in a back-to-the-future picture. That never would have happened. If he hauls that in, I think there's a lot less harsh criticism of Mordecai on Twitter. And that was totally out of his hands. He put it exactly where he needed to put it. That's a part of the analysis as well coming out of Saturday. But he is he's going to have to tighten things up. And it's going to have to get tightened up before this weekend. I will admit. When I looked at the non-conference schedule and we talked about betting on the over on the Badger season win total, that's one. We need nine. That's one. When I looked at that schedule, even though Washington State came to Camp Randall last year and beat the Badgers, when I looked at that schedule, given all the hype and all the energy behind this program, I looked at Buffalo, at Washington State, at home against Georgia Southern as win-win-win. I felt like when I put that bet down last week on the over on 8.5, ostensibly the over on 9 for me, I felt like they were 3-0 already. 
that might be a little more tense on Saturday. Given that Washington State had a good year last year, they beat the Badgers last year. Totally different Badger team, though, for the most part. Washington State was at Colorado State on Saturday, put a 50-burger on the board. They won 50-25. to In a game that probably before the year, they have spreads for every game before the year even begins. That's true of the NFL, too. I don't know what the spread was for Badgers-Washington State before what we saw happen on Saturday. I would guess it was in the 14-15 to point range. It opened at 4 then, after all the action on Saturday, and right now is sitting at 6.5. So a lot of heavy money is already coming on the Badgers. Still, that's a lot tighter of a line than I would have guessed it to be before we had week 1 of college football. I would have guessed near a two-touchdown favorite, even though we know what happened with the Cougars at Camp Randall last year. This is going to be a test, though. This is going to be a test, and we hope everybody looks a little tighter for the Badger program on Saturday. Luke Fickle, to his credit, he seemed depressed in the postgame presser. Did you see him? It's weird to see the Badger coach show emotion. (laughs) It's very odd to see that. Paul Crist was basically data from Star Trek. You couldn't tell if it was a good day, a bad day, and some people love that. Some players love that, where your coach is so vanilla and so even keel that it's hard to read the ups and downs. As a fan or somebody that works in radio that's responsible for cutting up audio, you want a little bit of Deion Sanders. You want a little charisma. You don't necessarily need as much prime time. Just a little bit. Just a hint. Just a smack of personality. And Chris really did not have that. You could read it on Fickle's face in the postgame and during his prep for week two. He did a press conference already on Monday, on Labor Day Monday. He was not happy. He thought that they'd come out tighter. He thought that they'd come out with a little more lockstep on both sides of the ball. He was bummed. And he said on Monday in the press conference, he actually apologized to his team for how depressed he was about that win. He said, wins are hard to come by, and we do need to celebrate them, even if we didn't maybe reach the level that we were hoping to reach. He talked about all that on Monday. You could tell he was a little let down with the way things went on Saturday. And I think a lot of Badger fans were. Quite frankly, I think we were all hoping they'd come out, even though we did expectation management, we were all hoping they'd come out and win 45 nothing or 52-7, to and Bucky would be having a heat stroke doing push-ups like the Oregon Duck. You see the Oregon Duck? The Oregon Duck, Oregon had similar weather to Wisconsin on Saturday, and they've had that really all summer. And the Ducks put up 81 points on Saturday, and they do the same thing where the Duck does push-ups after every score, however many points they've scored. That's what we were hoping for for Bucky on Saturday. It just didn't happen. We'll see if things get a little better as we head into this Saturday's road game against Washington State, which now, to me, becomes a pretty good test. Now it would be great if they come out and win by double digits and maybe do some of the things we were all hoping they would do heading into week one against Buffalo. Other college football stuff over the weekend. You had the big Florida State LSU game. Florida State got the win. We had them plus two. I did go three and two on my against-the-spread college football picks over the weekend. Michigan got a win, didn't look all that great with Harbaugh and suspension. Ohio State lackluster in a 23-3 win at Indiana. The game of the week, though, was Colorado and TCU and game one of the Deion Sanders era. Deion started his coaching career at Jackson State, won AA. Because of his charisma and personality, a lot of top-tier athletes wanted to play for him. He got some of the top recruits in the country that would typically end up at Alabama, at Notre Dame, at Premier Schools, Ohio State. He got a lot of them to play at Jackson State. I don't think he lost a game in two years, maybe one game in two or three years at Jackson State. Then this offseason, he got hired by Colorado. The Buffaloes coming off of one of the worst college football seasons ever where they finished 1-11 and and were non-competitive basically in every game. 
He goes there year one, takes almost all of his marquee players at Jackson State with him. They take on number 14 TCU on the road in the heat of Texas. And TCU, despite losing their quarterback from the national championship game last year, remember TCU was in the national title game last year? Max Duke and their quarterback gone. Still ranked number 14 in the country. That was one of the best college football games I've watched in a long time. If you love defense, it wasn't good for you there. They end up being a 48-45 to 45 winner. And then Dion, in classic Dion fashion, was calling out reporters in the post-game press conference who may have doubted the Colorado. What's up, boys? You believe now? You, you, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, no. Do you believe in that? Huh? Oh, no, no, no. I read through that bull junk you wrote. I, I read through that. I sifted it through all that. Yeah. Oh, no. Come on. Do you believe? You don't believe. You just answered it. You don't believe. Next question. So that was going viral after the win where he called out a reporter specifically who was trying to ask him a question. Must have written something in the offseason that said, I don't know about Dion at Colorado or the talent he's bringing in or whatever. And Dion basically <laughs> made him say, you have to say you believe in the program if you're going to ask me a question. And that guy said, whatever. I, I, it's not my job to believe in the program or to be a fan of the program. And Dion said, all right, next question. I actually have no problem with the way any of that played out. You saw a lot of big J journalists on Twitter, Blue Checkmark Brigade, defending that writer and saying, look, it's not a writer's job to be a fan of the program or be a fan of the team or to buy into the coaching philosophy. Their job is to write their opinion and then report on the game, on a win or a loss, who was good, who was bad. This era, though, is so different. This is not 1965 anymore. You kind of have to have a take. Even the most ardent journalists that I read that cover the Brewers or the Packers or whatever, there's a little bit of opinion in there now. Where that used to be totally frowned upon, there's a little hint of a take now or a slant in a lot of those articles. I get what they're saying, that you should be able to ask questions without being a fan or uh, a pledged fan of the team. I get that. But I also don't mind Dion reading what this guy wrote, which was clearly an opinion piece before the season began, and not taking his questions. I don't know. I don't have a problem with that either. I don't think I have a problem on either side. That was the game of the week, though. And now look how the lines change. They've got Nebraska at Colorado, the home opener for Dion, which I'm sure is sold out. And they probably would have been underdogs in that game, even though Nebraska looked like trash at at Minnesota in Matt Rule's first game for the Cornhuskers. I would have guessed, again, if you would have looked at lines before this past Saturday, I would guess Nebraska would have been a favorite. Now you've got Colorado as almost a touchdown favorite in that game. They look great. His kid, Shadir, the quarterback, looks unbelievable. Five touchdowns, 400 yards. They've got Travis Hunter, who was the number one recruit in all of America heading into last year. He played at Jackson State. He played both ways. He played over 100 snaps in the Texas Heat. And not only did he play both ways, he had an impact on both sides. He had something like 11 catches as a wide receiver, and he had an interception in the red zone as a cornerback. Unbelievable effort by him. That's a name not a lot of people knew heading into Saturday. They knew coming out of it, though. That was the biggest storyline coming out of week one college football. Deion Sanders, prime time in Colorado. I believe prime time. If you want to come on the podcast, I, I believe I believe in you. I believe in the program. All right. We will do some futures. Then we're going to do number two on my personal top five favorite Packer Bear matchups. We are going to do – here comes the money. We're not playing that today. We're going to play it on Friday, though. We're going to do the gambling intro like we did last year all throughout the year. We ended up last year just against the spread, college football and NFL picks every Friday. We ended up, I think, over eight units up, which is great. If you can break 500, 
that's a good gambling year. If you just walk away and you can wipe your hands of it and you're not paying anybody and nobody's paying you, that's all right over the course of a 16 or 17 or 18-week college and NFL schedule combined. We were up eight units last year. We will be doing individual game picks on Friday like we did every Friday podcast last year. There are some futures I want to hit, though, before the season begins on Thursday. Should we do a little primetime music here? Should we put this in for the... Mm, mm. Feels like we could add this. We're going to make these quick for the most part. I don't know if I have the rights to this. This may get me in trouble. All right, well, let's pause. <laughs> we'll consult our legal department there. That might get me in trouble. We may bring that back next week. There are some futures that I've laid money on already for season win totals and for a couple of division winners. Number one season win total I'm on the over on. The Green Bay Packers. <laughs> is that a shock to anybody? The season win total is seven and a half. I see this team not only hitting that, I think they're going to hit it comfortably. I think they're going to get nine to ten wins. I am bullish on this Packer team. And the reason I am is because last year, what's the biggest reason? Last year's over-under, I think, was ten and a half for the Packers, or eleven maybe even, on the season win total. Now it's seven and a half. What's the number one difference, all right? The elephant in the room, you lose the Hall of Famer Aaron Rodgers, and you go to the kind of unknown, mostly unknown, in Jordan Love. That's a three or four win drop-off. That's the number one reason people are saying the Packers aren't going to be good this year because they don't have Aaron Rodgers. Let me tell you something, everybody. The Packers didn't have Aaron Rodgers last year. They didn't have him. They didn't have Aaron Rodgers last year either. They already went through one year without Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, and maybe it was the thumb. And we're certainly going to find out, based on how the Jets do this year, based on how he performs with the Jets, if he's back to MVP Aaron from 2011 and 2014 and more recently 2020 and 2021, if he's back to that guy with QBRs in the 70s and 80s and quarterback ratings in the low hundreds, then we can maybe look back to 2022 and say the broken thumb was probably the number one problem for him and the reason his accuracy was down, he couldn't hit the deep ball and he was throwing interceptions, which were very uncharacteristic. Maybe that's the number one thing that was wrong with him last year. It doesn't matter what the problem was last year. He was not Aaron Rodgers last year. He was not even a middle-of-the-road quarterback last year. His QBR was in the 40s. His quarterback rating was in the low to mid-90s. He was average or below average by almost every metric in the year, in the one year, 2022. Take nothing away from winning the Super Bowl and being the Super Bowl MVP in Super Bowl 45, winning four MVPs, first ballot Hall of Famer, maybe the best football tactician as a quarterback in the history of the game, him or Peyton Manning probably. Take nothing away from any of that. In a vacuum in 2022, the Green Bay Packers did not have Aaron Rodgers. They didn't have him. So that hasn't changed from 2022 to 2023. They didn't have Rodgers last year. They don't have Rodgers this year. They went 8-9 and nine last year with a pedestrian version of Aaron Rodgers. I believe that Jordan Love can be as good as Aaron Rodgers was last year. Are his stats going to look exactly the same? Maybe not. Is the offense going to be run the same? Definitely not. He can be as good or better in terms of efficiency than Rodgers was last year. I believe in Jordan Love as an efficient quarterback in year one that's going to give you some spectacular plays. He's going to make a lot of mistakes, too. And some that are going to frustrate everybody, I think, and some bad picks here and there and whatever. We saw that last year, though, with Aaron Rodgers, and it was an eight-win team. That would have gotten them over on seven and a half. You look around the division, I am, I don't want to say I'm out on the Lions. I weirdly root for the Lions. We talked about that last year after watching Dan Campbell on Hard Knocks heading into last season, seeing the way they finished the year, having that team 
take away the playoffs from the Packers at Lambeau Field in Week 17, and they end the year what? Winning eight of their last ten? They're the division favorites in the NFC North, but they're the Lions. And they had a weak schedule last year. And when they rolled off those eight wins in ten weeks, they played a lot of injured teams with injured quarterbacks. Their offense was good. Their defense was bad. And the defense really hasn't improved for Detroit. When I look around the division, the the Vikings won 13 games. They won the division. Their over-under is eight and a half. And they have had not a ton of turnover. I don't know that I've ever seen a number regress like that for a team that's not losing a Hall of Fame quarterback or some marquee defensive or offensive standout for it to regress almost five games. When I look around the division, I don't know that I see a team that's a world better than this team. If Jordan Love can just be average or slightly above average, this is a team that can win eight, nine, ten games. I think the Packers go nine and eight or ten and seven, and that pretty comfortably gets them over that seven and a half win total. I am also going to put a little money on the Packers to win the division because to me, this division is wide open. The Vikings were 11-0 and in one-score games last year. And there is something to be said for a team that's able to win those games, those tight games. But regression is coming. There's just no way they're going to do that again. Some of the ways they won games. That Buffalo game last year was absolutely ridiculous. The Colts game where they were down 26 to nothing or whatever it was, that was ridiculous. Those are things that are, in my mind, not going to duplicate. The Lions, even though everybody's high on them, I don't see it. I see them as an 8-9 win team, similar to last year. I see the Vikings as an 8-9 win team. I see the Bears as a 5-win team or a 6-win team. They're 7.5. I'm not betting against the Bears. That's a huge uptick to go from 3-14 and 14 to 7.5 as the predictor for the next year, and they added DJ Moore, and he's fine. But beyond that, I just don't see a ton. The division is totally up for grabs. And the Packers have plus 340. The reason I'm putting money on that is not because I'm 100% sold on the Packers winning the division. I do believe the Packers will win 9 or 10 games. I do believe that will put them firmly in the division race. But with that and the odds paying more than 3-1, to one, almost 3.5-1, to one, you've got to throw a little on that. I'm on the Packers over 7.5. I'm on them on the division title at plus 340. And the defense is going to be, to me, along with Jordan Love, those are the two biggest factors I am going to defend Joe Barry a little bit here. Are you ready for 90 seconds of defending Joe Barry? This is like when your parents tell you as a kid that somebody's coming to Thanksgiving that you don't necessarily love, one of your relatives, and then your mom says, oh, he's not that bad. He means well, and he had some trouble in the 60s and 70s, and he invested early in Google, and maybe there's some money that he'll pass down to you later. You know, they try to sell you on that person. I'm going to do that right now for Joe Barry. I'm going to give the Thanksgiving pitch on Joe Barry. I know everybody doesn't like Joe Barry. He has been the D coordinator for two years. In his first year as the defensive coordinator in 2021, this was a top 10 defense. It was number 10 in the NFL in total defense. That's a top 10 defense. And in the playoffs, in that divisional round game against the 49ers, they did everything they could to win that game. You could argue in the Aaron Rodgers era, in all of the playoff games that he played in, that that divisional round game against the Niners in 2021 was the best single defensive performance in any playoff game in Rodgers' career. Maybe you can make a case with the Falcons during the 2010 run when you had the Tremont picks or even the Bears' NFC Championship game that year. I'm trying to think of any more standout. They didn't give up anything that day. That was a top-10 defense that played elite-level defense in the one playoff game they had that year in 2021. Now, do they take a step back or two last year in terms of total defense? Yes, they finished 19th in the league from 10th to 19th Even though you invested more money and you invested more draft capital, they went from 10th to 19th. That said, 
when the Packers made their run late in the year to try and get in the playoffs, the defense led the way. For the final eight games of the year, and you can certainly pick apart some of the opponents they played, the Baker Mayfield Rams and teams like that. The last eight games of the year, the defense gave up 17 points a game. That's pretty damn good in the NFL. And the defense did everything it could in that final game against the Lions to get them into the postseason. It was not the defense's fault. It was Aaron Rodgers and the offense in that game. The defense did plenty to win that final game and get them into the postseason. Yes, they took a step back in terms of ranking almost across the board from 2021 to 2022. But the final eight games, they were solid, and they were one of the primary reasons that team had a puncher's chance to make the playoffs at the end of that year. All of that on the table. If they're bad this year with another first-round pick on defense in Van Ness, if they're bad this year, that's probably it for Joe Barry. But when you look at the two years he's been defensive coordinator, top 10 in 2021 and an elite performance in the playoffs, top 20 right at 19 in 2022, but played very good or at least a lot better the second half of the year and gave their team a chance to get into the playoffs. And he does seem like a coach who's been receptive to player criticism and player advice. That's where things shifted in the middle of last year when players like Jair Alexander and name players on the team started to be vocal about, why aren't we doing this? And why aren't you letting me in man coverage? And to Barry's credit, he did adjust a lot of that in the second half of the year, and it looks like that could continue into this year. His job, to me, is on the line this year, his third year as the D coordinator. I don't think, though, it's been as bad as people are making it out to be his two years as defensive coordinator. If they can find a way to get back into that top 10, top 11, top 12, and Jordan Love is adequate to slightly above average, this team is going to go 9-8, and eight. this team could go 10-7, and seven, and they can compete for an NFC North Division title. For that reason... I am big on the Packers over 7.5, and and I am tickler on the Packers plus 340 to win the division. There's an individual Jordan Love prop I like, too. I am over on his total passing yards on the year. The total passing yard marker is 3,350. If you divide 3,350 by 17 games, that would mean he'd have to throw for 197 yards a game. I'm sure your reaction to hearing that is the same one that I had when I saw it, thinking, that's easy money. In the modern NFL, in the passing NFL, where you can't hit a quarterback and you can't touch a wide receiver, even if he's not great, 200 yards a game, that's something a quarterback should be able to do if he's healthy for 17 games. And by the way, for all these futures, we always assume health. If you're going to bet a future and think about, oh, this guy could get hurt, that guy could get hurt, that might cost him a few games, you can't do that. When you're betting futures, you have to assume that the core players on that team are going to be healthy for the entire year. That's built into the cake. That's in the cocktail. 197 yards per game. I think Jordan's going to get a lot of yards from guys creating after short passes. Christian Watson catching in the flat, turning it upfield. Aaron Jones in the flat or over the middle on shovel passes or screen passes. 200 yards a game. He's going to have to be healthy. If he misses a game or two or three, it's going to be real dicey. If he plays 16 or 17 games, I believe he should be able to get to 3,500-ish yards passing. We are on the over on 3,350 yards passing from Jordan Love. Okay, real quick. Other futures I like, the Saints to win the NFC South. The NFC South is a dumpster fire. The Saints are paying plus 120 to win the division. You can make a case for the Falcons. You can make a case for almost any team in that division. You could probably even make a case for Baker Mayfield and the Buccaneers because their defense is all right. What I like about the Saints, Derek Carr in New Orleans, he's coming off of his worst year in Vegas, but he's in a dome. He is so much better statistically in dome games than outdoor games, 
And combined with being in a dome at home now and with the road schedule, he is playing 12 of his 17 games in a dome for the Saints this year. The Saints have the easiest schedule on paper of any team in the NFL. They have Michael Thomas back, but he doesn't have to be Michael Thomas of 2018 or 2017. He just has to be serviceable because Chris Olave is the new up-and-coming star. They have weapons at wide receiver. Alvin Kamara is going to rejoin them in week four after his suspension. And their defense has been good. The one thing I hate about the Saints, Dennis Allen, the head coach, is not a good head coach. He is 15-36 and as a head coach. I love the head coach in Atlanta, Arthur Smith, and that is the team I'm most concerned about, threatening that this this Saints to win the division bet would not pay. If I could move Arthur Smith to the head coach of the Saints, I would already be spending this money. Dennis Allen is the Achilles heel of that team. Even with that, with the solid defense, I think a rebound year for Carr, playing in a dome, they have weapons on offense. I like them to win that division at plus money, at plus 120. Over under season win totals, I like. Tennessee Titans are at seven and a half. I like the over on the Titans at seven and a half. I don't believe in Jacksonville the same way I don't believe in Detroit. I do believe Trevor Lawrence is an up and coming quarterback. The Jaguars, though, now by winning the division, they have to play a first place schedule. The Titans last year were eight and two through their first 10 games, and then literally everybody went to the hospital. They had one big ambulance and took everyone off that team, and they stumbled down the stretch run. Mike Vrabel is an excellent head coach. They have had a ton of success there. Tannehill's their starting quarterback. I understand that. Derrick Henry is still on the back end of his prime. They signed DeAndre Hopkins. He's also on the back end of his prime. Vrabel's defenses always play. I am over on 7.5. I can see that team winning the division. I'm going to put a little tickler on that, too, because like the Packers, they are plus 330 to win the division in the AFC South. But I am over on the 7.5 wins for the Titans. The Raiders, I'm under six and a half wins. I think they're going to be the worst team in football. I have no faith in Josh McDaniels as a head coach. Their offensive line is bad, and Jimmy Garoppolo is their quarterback. That is not a good one-two punch, everybody. He's going to be running for his life. I feel bad for Devontae. That team is in full-on transition. Josh Jacobs is still a good running back, the leader in rushing yards last year. He's back, but again, the offensive line has seen some changes. I don't like that system for a running back anyway. I don't think McDaniels is one who's going to want to run the ball 20, 25 times a game. Devontae is going to die on that team. They are under six and a half, and I think they could be the worst team in football. They may win three or four games. Cowboys, I'm over ten and a half wins. Mike McCarthy, if he has a healthy team that's talented, he wins 11 or 12 games a year. What he does in the playoffs, <laughs> that's a debate for another day, but that's not what this bet is about. You could make a case the Cowboys are the most talented team in the NFC on paper. I am over on ten and a half wins. That was at nine and a half. I wish I would have gotten it there. I am over on 10.5. I see them finishing 11-6 and six at minimum. They're probably a 12-win team. I'm also over on the Niners, 10.5. They have pretty good pay odds to win the NFC and make the Super Bowl or to be the number one seed in the NFC. The defense is the best in football. The question mark there is Brock Purdy coming back off of injury. How will he be? Can he be a game manager? Can Christian McCaffrey avoid injury? We're betting on him not. They've got some other weapons in the running game. Not a whole lot of anything in the NFC West outside of the Seahawks. They have an easy four wins in that division over 10 and a half for the Niners. I am also over on the Browns, nine and a half wins Deshaun Watson coming back after massage gate. He was uneven in six starts last year. That was to be expected given that he hadn't played in the NFL in two years. They have talent at wide receiver. They have one of the best running backs in the league in Chubb. They are loaded on the offensive line and their front seven defensively is outstanding. That division is going to be a bloodbath. That division with Cincinnati limping into the regular season, Pittsburgh, after their hot finish to the year last year, Cleveland is talented, and the Ravens are talented. Lamar has his new contract. 
Every team could be over 500 in that division. Every team. I am over on nine and a half wins. I see them going right at the over at 10 and seven. And I'm under on the Panthers, seven and a half wins. That feels too high. Rookie quarterback, Frank Reich has not proven anything in the NFL. He's the new head coach in Carolina. Bryce Young was the top pick in the draft for a reason. He is undersized, though, behind a bad offensive line, and he is not particularly mobile. You might think he was based on some of the Alabama stats, but I don't think he is by NFL metrics. They're going to struggle, I think. If they win seven, that's a good season for a rookie quarterback and a new head coach. If they can go seven and ten, that would be a good year. That would be a good step forward. I don't see them getting to eight and nine or nine and eight. I've got them under on seven and a half total wins. So Packers over seven and a half, Titans over seven and a half, Raiders under six and a half, Cowboys and Niners both over ten and a half, Browns over nine and a half, Panthers under seven and a half, Packers to win the division, Saints to win the division, and what was the other one? Jordan Love over three thousand three hundred and fifty yards passing. Those are the NFL futures we're going to deal with heading into the year. All right. With that said, let's get to number two. On my Packer Bear countdown, we had number five was the Favre 1995 five touchdown after injury game. Number four was It's Money on opening night 2018. Last week was the 1994 Halloween Rain Monsoon Slop Fest, where they were both wearing those retro jerseys, too. I don't think we mentioned that on the podcast last week. That was also the game where both teams were wearing those horrific 1930s throwbacks where the Packers had just the gold on the top of the shoulder pads and the helmet. I think Kenny Rutgers that night in 94, if memory serves, I'm pretty sure they allowed him to have a jack-o'-lantern decal because that was kind of the color of the helmet for the Packers. That was also a part of that game that made it memorable, those throwback jerseys. That was number three. We're pretty sure we all know what number one's going to be, right? Number two on the list takes us to week 17, 20. 13. Aaron Rodgers earlier in the year on a Sunday night game against the Bears, or was it a Monday night game? He was knocked out by Shane McClellan, collarbone injury, and that sent the whole season spiraling. Remember, they had Seneca Wallace starting some of those games. That was short-lived. Scott Tolzien was starting games or playing in games. What a weird era that was. Former Badger quarterback, he was a part of that tie against Minnesota. Finally, they brought back Matt Flynn that year, and he played some decent games. He got them a win. Where My buddy Pat and I were at that cold game against the Atlanta Falcons. We may or may not have watched the second half of that game from a bar because it was so cold and they played so poorly in the first half. He won that game. He had the epic comeback in Dallas against Tony Romo where they were down three touchdowns and rallied back after halftime to win that game. That did just enough to put the Packers in a position with Aaron Rodgers returning the final week of the year where they were in a win and you're in to win the NFC North. The Bears came in 8-7, and seven, Packers came in 7-7-1, seven, seven and one, winner of this game, wins the division, and also takes that automatic playoff spot. Aaron Rodgers back after eight or nine weeks gone with that collarbone injury. This was a weird game up to and including the memorable final play. Packers were down 7-3 to early. Remember this touchdown? Aaron Rodgers had the ball knocked out of his hand. As it was kind of moving forward, the ball went forward. They call it a fumble. They don't call it a forward pass. The ball sits on the turf. Jarrett Boykin, of all people, eventually picks it up, and Rodgers screams at him to run to the end zone because there has been no whistle, and that's the first touchdown of the game for Green Bay. On first down, Rodgers is hit from behind. Ball is out. 
They're saying this play is live. They're waiting for somebody to do something. That's Boykin. He's going to go in for a touchdown. How about that? And they reviewed that, and it held up. One of the weirdest touchdowns of any game I've seen. 10-7 to lead for the Packers at that point. They had a 13-7 to halftime lead. Then coming out in the second half, they were down 14-13. to Randall Cobb, the first of what would be two memorable touchdown catches, put the backers back in front. Rodgers slides, throws, touchdown! Randall Cobb in his first game back. That put the Packers up 20-14, to but the Bears would respond. They would score 14 unanswered. Early fourth quarter, Packers down 28-20. to Eddie Lacy, six-yard touchdown run his rookie year. Here's Lacy. Eddie Lacy is going to get to the edge for the touchdown! A big part of the reason, in addition to Matt Flynn, the Packers were able to keep their heads above water was Eddie Lacy's Rookie of the Year. He was the Offensive Rookie of the Year that year. Massive game against Dallas in that comeback. He was incredible in several different spots. The week before against Pittsburgh, he put on a show in a tight loss to the Steelers at Lambeau Field. We were also at that game. That was a snow blizzard game the week before this matchup. Lacey's rookie year and his ability to run the ball and the team's ability to run the ball consistently kept them in games as well. That got the Packers to within 28-27. It all leads to the final drive. People remember the Randall Cobb catch, and we're going to play that in a second. We're going to play the radio broadcast call of that. I was watching the highlights this morning to get some of those clips. I forgot that was the third fourth down conversion on that drive. They had to convert a fourth and one and a fourth and five on that drive before this one. So this is the third fourth down conversion. Fourth down and eight. John Kuhn saves Aaron Rodgers' life by getting a piece of future Packer, Julius Peppers. Peppers, I'm pretty sure, came the next year. He's able to chip Peppers out of the way. Rodgers gets loose. Randall Cobb is wide open. And we get this memorable call from Wayne Larrabee and Larry McCarron. Rodgers in the shotgun. Three receivers left, one to the right. Packers need at least seven yards to move the chains. Rodgers gets the snap. Blitz is on. Rodgers scrambles He's left, winds up rainbow. Bob. He's got Cobb of the 10 to the 5, yes. to the end zone. Touchdown and a dagger. Oh, my goodness. An NFC North Division championship dagger of 47 yards. That might be the all-time Larry McCarron <laughs> talking over Wade Larrabee moment. He just couldn't contain himself. When he saw what we all saw as the audience, if you're watching on TV, when Rodgers cocked back and threw that ball and you saw nobody around Randall Cobb, we all said what Larry said. Now, broadcasting etiquette would dictate that he would let the play-by-play guy bring that to people's attention. But the best part about Larry is he cannot bottle it up in those moments. And I think he called Randall Cobb Brandon Cobb. Whatever. That's one of the all-time Larry McCarron trampling all over Wayne Larrabee moments. They get that touchdown, go up 33-28, don't get the two-point conversion, and then the Bears had 40 seconds and three timeouts. They got inside the 50, but it ended on a deep chuck from Jay Cutler, and (laughs) same old Jay, intercepted by Sam Shields to end the game. Packers make the playoffs, and nothing bad happened after that. Well, they had that home game against Colin Kaepernick, second year in a row. The Niners were able to eliminate the Packers in the playoffs. That, though, one of my favorite all-time moments. Let's play the It's Randall Cobb again, too, by the way. It's Randall Cobb again! That was the touchdown catch that led to that clip in 2018. It's Randall Cobb again. That's the again part. This game is the again part of that whole clip five years later. 
Packers won 33-28 and won the NFC North. My second favorite Packer-Bear game in my lifetime. Number one coming up on Friday. I'm pretty sure you all know what that will be. On Friday, we will recap the Brewery, take a look at the NL Central and where they're at three days from now. We will get you set for week one of the NFL. We'll make some picks against the spread. We'll also talk about Badgers, Washington State, a little more in-depth as they head into their first road matchup in the Luke Fickle era Saturday night. Have a happy, safe work week. We'll chat with you then.